When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Iyad Hassami, a host of this channel. I'm a research uh, postgraduate researcher at the School of English at the University of Leeds, and I'm working on ecology and agriculture in post-independence Lebanon, and my project is supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today on the show, we will be talking with Dr. Joe Handelsman, author of A World Without Soil, The Past, Present, and Precarious Future of the Earth Beneath Our Feet. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So please, uh, it would be great to begin if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Well, sure. Uh, I'm currently the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery, which is an interdisciplinary research institute at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. And I've been here for most of my career. Uh, I did go to Yale University for a few years and then to the White House, where I worked as a science advisor to President Obama for three, a little over three years. I'm a soil scientist by training. I study the microbes that live in soil and figure out ways that they talk to each other and communicate uh, within the soil and on plant roots, and also study microbiomes in other environments like the human, the human gut. Wonderful. So a world without soil. Tell us how you came to write this book. Well, in spite of the fact that I've been in soil science for many decades, um, we all get so narrow in science that I had begun to focus entirely on soil microbiology and um, in particular, the molecular biology and chemistry of soil bacteria. And when I went to college, uh, we thought that erosion was about to be uh, cured. And, and the problem would be solved because just a few years earlier, the concept of no-till farming had been introduced, which is the process of planting seeds by drilling them into the soil rather than plowing furrows and putting uh, seeds in. And plowing is one of the most destructive things we do to soil. So when I was in college, it was a really exciting time. Everyone thought, oh, wow, you know, soil, soil erosion is conquered. We're not going to see um, uh, the kind of erosion that we have in the past in the future because everybody will switch to no-till now that it's available. Well, I kind of left it there and didn't really think about it after that and moved into molecular biology. I heard that there was great legislation in the mid 80s that introduced the uh, farmers to all sorts of um, uh, reinforcements and incentives to practice soil protection. And then also provided the USDA, which in the United States is the uh, entity that regulates and manages and researches agricultural issues, uh, they had given USDA the power to enforce some of these policies. 
And so by 1985, again, we kind of thought the problem was solved. And if you look back at the numbers, soil erosion did plummet between 1985 and 1992. But what I kind of failed to follow was the fact that by 1992 and then the following farm bill, the farm bill is passed every five years in this country, they, the Congress had been uh, eroding the power of the USDA to enforce these policies and to hold farmers accountable for the soil protection plans that they were being incentivized uh, to implement. And so slowly but very quickly uh, or very immediately, the soil erosion rates began to creep up again. And now we're in a a positive soil erosion time in in the sense that we are losing soil at a pretty rapid clip. So when I was in the White House, I discovered what had happened to these uh, regulations of the USDA and the funding for the USDA, which had been severely cut and diminished their ability to enforce um, the policies and hold farmers accountable. And I was kind of appalled to find out that, no, the problem had definitely not been solved, that only about a third of U.S. farmers had adopted no-till agriculture. So that was certainly not solving the problem. And the laws that I thought were going to cure the problem had been um, sort of eroded along with the soil in uh, the 1990s and beyond. So I was uh, pretty shocked by how bad the problem was, and I began to research it, and I talked to experts all over the country and realized that I'd kind of missed this crisis, and it was kind of shocking to be a soil scientist and know, I think, a fair amount about soil, but not realize that we only have a few decades of soil left at the rate we're going. And so I tried to implement policy while I was in the White House, but it was toward the end of the administration. It was very hard to introduce new ideas at that point. And so we had a small soil science initiative, but it certainly didn't attack some of the big problems. So when I left the White House, I was I was sort of tortured by what hadn't gotten done in soil and decided that perhaps a book for the general public as well as scientists and policymakers uh, might have a bigger effect than I was able to have in the White House. Early on in the book, in your first chapter, uh, which is titled Dawning, an Invisible Crisis, um, engages with the question of how soil science research and practice specifically concerning soil erosion are connected or not. Could you comment on the problems and gaps then between soil research and soil practice and why you see a crisis, which you've already mentioned? If you could elaborate on that a little. Sure. Well, the U.S. Department of Ag's uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service is the, uh, the agency and government that is responsible for protecting uh, soil. And they have had their budget cut repeatedly, and they simply need more resources in order to uh, carry out the kind of, um, of protection that we need for soil. And so that's, I think, the fundamental disconnect is the Natural Resources Conservation Service does great programming. They know what we need to do to preserve soil. There's great science going on there. And they extend that to farmers as much as they can. But without the budget to be able to hold farmers accountable for their soil protection plans, there's really no way to make those policies have a, a, a giant impact, which is what we need. And so we know the basic practices that are needed to change uh, in order to protect soil. And we're just not practicing them on enough acreage to truly make a difference. And so the crisis comes from continuing on much of America's farmland um, to practice farming in a way that erodes the soil at a rate that's just not sustainable. We're eroding it about 10, between 10 and 100 times faster than the soil is made. And that's simply not a sustainable process. Wow. Moving from policy, research, and practice, your second chapter intertwines organisms and minerals, such as cyanobacteria, zircons, and silicon dioxide, 
as a segue into a discussion of microorganisms, specifically bacteria and soil. And I was struck by how you narrated your experience near the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption near Corvallis, Oregon. Can you tell us about that volcano and why this historical geological context is relevant to your investigation about soil biochemistry and microbiology? Well, I attended a meeting, a uh, scientific meeting about nitrogen fixation in 1984 in Corvallis, Oregon. And the meeting was about the process that bacteria use for taking nitrogen gas from the air, which is an inert gas that plants and animals cannot uh, use for, as a source of nitrogen. And the bacteria break that gas apart and then turn it into usable forms of nitrogen for plants and other organisms. And at the time, most of my research focused on the bacteria that live in association with plant roots and carry out this process, providing those plants, in that case, it was legumes, uh, plants like soybeans and peas and alfalfa and clover, uh, they provide, the bacteria provide those plants with sufficient nitrogen for their needs. And they are very important in uh, early colonization of land. They're often the very first plants that you see because in land that hasn't been, uh, that, that, that is just rock and mineral at that point, there's no source of nitrogen. And so the only plants that can thrive are ones that are associated with bacteria that are fixing nitrogen from the air. So we were at this meeting and there was a field trip to the volcano uh, site of Mount St. Helens, which had erupted four years earlier in 1980. It was one of the most stunning and massive uh, volcanic eruptions um, that that area has seen. And it left, of course, this enormous crater in the mountain, and it, it left a lot of lava that had hardened into just a, a rocky, almost black uh, landscape. And so we went up there to see it, and it was quite striking because it was really like looking at the surface of the moon or the early earth when there was rock but not soil before life had colonized. And we knew that, you know, in four years, the, the volcanic material had probably just cooled and begun to be colonized by bacteria. And then at the edge of the volcano, we saw a little plant, one plant standing by itself, and it was a legume, which is a plant that associates with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And so it was like seeing a snapshot of the science that we all worked on um, happening, you know, sort of like at the beginning of the world um, with bacteria colonizing and then supporting the growth of plants. And then, you know, in some period of time, there would be soil there. And, and so it was like watching the soil process, the soil formation process in action. So I, I found it just a very moving uh, example of how the earth changes and then how biology comes in and interacts with that um, mineral base and turns it into the rich uh, environment that we that we know of around us. Moving now to chapter three, earthworks, you introduced the term geosmin, which you define as a chemical released by soil dwelling bacteria. It's also the smell of soil after a rain. In this chapter, you focus on the rise of agriculture in human history and the collapse of certain civilizations due to soil erosion. And I was also struck by your discussion of nitrogen and the connection between fossil fuels and industrial agriculture. Could you tell us more about these chemicals and connections with industrial paradigms? Well, there's a very strong connection between what I just talked about with Mount St. Helens and the nitrogen story. So before the 20th century, essentially all of the nitrogen in biological systems came from the process of biological nitrogen fixation carried out by bacteria. Some of those bacteria are free living in the soil, some live in oceans, some live inside of plants, but they all have the, the ability to take nitrogen gas from the air and convert it to uh, forms of nitrogen that are usable by plants and other organisms. 
And so that was a very uh, important cycle in agriculture because farmers would plant uh, leguminous crops like peas or uh, soybeans or other alfalfa, other nitrogen fixing uh, crops. And that would fertilize with nitrogen their land. And then they would cycle uh, into another crop like corn that doesn't have nitrogen fixing bacteria providing it with nitrogen. So corn needs a lot of externally applied nitrogen. And in that case, it was the residue from these leguminous crops that fed the corn uh, the nitrogen that it needed. And that would the same would be true if it was wheat or rice and many other um plants that do not associate uh, with nitrogen fixing bacteria. And that was a very sustainable system because the nitrogen was always being reestablished, resupplied by the leguminous plants and the bacteria that lived on them. And they, they kept fertilizing the soil. In the early 20th century, somebody named uh, Fritz Haber uh, developed a method out of his work for actually for the German government developing uh, mustard gas uh, chemistry. He discovered a way of fixing nitrogen in the laboratory or in an industrial setting. And it does the same reaction that the bacteria do, but uses very high pressure and high temperature uh, to split the, the nitrogen gas bonds that, that, that hold the two atoms of nitrogen together and then convert it to ammonia so that it can then be turned into forms of nitrogen in other biological systems. And so after about 1920, after World War I, the uh, use of nitrogen fertilizers made by this industrial system uh, ex just exploded across agriculture, particularly in more industrialized countries where there was um, the economic capacity um, to purchase nitrogen fertilizers. And that replaced the legumes in, in many, many cropping systems. And so they were no longer needed for their nitrogen uh, contribution. But that meant that farmers would plant, for example, years and years of continuous corn. Today, we see uh, three or four years of corn being planted in a row in the Midwest, for example, uh, because it's the most lucrative crop that the plant the farmers have. And they just keep piling on the nitrogen that they buy at the at the um, ag store, and they don't have to worry about replenishing the nitrogen in the soil using leguminous crops. But the legumes have other purposes as well. They replenish a lot more than just the nitrogen in the soil, and now we are we are bleeding the soil and removing all sorts of other nutrients as well as just the carbon that that uh, crops leave behind. Uh, like legumes. And the result is a much weaker soil system. It's a, just not a healthy soil and it erodes much more easily. The nitrogen is often applied in excess. And so it ends up um, leaching into the soil and into the groundwater or running off into streams and rivers. So it causes pollution. And so nitrogen fertilizer is not used carefully in many places. It's overused. It requires large amounts of fossil fuels for its production because it requires such high heat and, and pressure, uh, which are generated using energy. And so it's really not a very ecologically um, sound way to fertilize our crops. And so that was one of the really big shifts in agriculture was early in the 20th century, the introduction of nitrogen fertilizers that really enabled the industrial um, age of agriculture that we know today. Now, nitrogen had incredible uh, effects on the ability of the human species to feed itself. And many countries have become self-sufficient in crop production and produce enough food to feed themselves, in part because they had nitrogen fertilizers. But that is one positive that is balanced by this very severe uh, crisis that we're seeing in, in soil loss. Mm -hmm. Staying in that chapter, earthworks, the potential of soil bacteria to enhance the antibiotic industry becomes a matter of personal concern for you. I was moved by the way in which you integrate your personal narrative with the question of soil sourced antibiotics, as well as educational initiatives around them. 
what happened? And how do you see the future of the field of soil bacteria and antibiotics? Well, very early in my career as a professor, my research lab uh, discovered a new antibiotic from a soil bacterium. And then in subsequent years, we discovered several other antibiotics. And so we began to have the impression that there were a lot of antibiotics still to be discovered in soil. This was a little bit surprising because in the 1980s, after decades of discovering antibiotics from soil bacteria, that's the backbone of the antibiotic industry, 75% of our antibiotics come from soil bacteria. Uh, and that's been true since the 1940s. Um, and so by the 1980s, the companies that, that produced these antibiotics were arguing that the soil was all tapped out, it was completely mined, there was nothing left to discover, and we needed to go to other sources of drugs. That was coupled with the movement of those companies away from antibiotics because antibiotics are not terribly lucrative. People take them for, say, 10, five to 10 days for a typical infection, whereas if you discover a new drug for managing cholesterol or asthma or diabetes or some other chronic disease, they will often take that drug for the rest of their lives. And so the company makes a lot more money on it. And so the result is that there was this withdrawal of research in industry um, about antibiotics. But because of where my research was, which is in soil bacteria, we just kept turning up these interesting new molecules. And so I was convinced that the soil was not tapped out. And in the 19, late 1980s and 90s, my mother had developed a bacterial infection in her lungs and she ended up, the infection itself ended up causing immunosuppression in her so that she couldn't fight the infection. And over many years, she just had all these repeated infections over and over. And so the doctors kept cycling her through different antibiotics to kill the, the, the bacteria, but then other bacteria would emerge or resistant strains of the original bacterium would, um, would evolve and they would have to switch to a new antibiotic. So this went on for um, about 16 years and her health was worsening and worsening. And throughout this time, my lab was working on soil bacteria, many of which produced antibiotics. And so it was one of these just horribly sad ironies of my life that for years I watched my mother suffer with these bacterial infections in her lungs. And I was working on antibiotic discovery, but I couldn't discover an antibiotic quickly enough to save her. And she died in 2001. And uh, I continue my work on antibiotic discovery, fueled partly because of my interest in soil bacteria. And I think antibiotics are interesting molecules, but also fueled by just the, the personal commitment to my mother. And I developed an educational program uh, because the companies were not discovering antibiotics, but we still need them, right? We're in the middle of another crisis, which is uh, the antibiotic resistance crisis uh, involving bacteria that no longer respond to the antibiotics that we use in clinical settings. And so I decided, well, maybe if the companies won't discover new antibiotics, I can get an army of undergraduate students across the world to do it. And so I've developed this course called Tiny Earth in which students discover new antibiotics uh, and antibiotic producing bacteria from soil. And we have now uh, classrooms in a few hundred uh, different locations across the world in 30 different countries. We have probably, we think somewhere around 14,000 students a year taking the course. And then uh, my lab is working on taking any isolates those students want to share with us and um, studying the drugs that they may produce. And so that project is still very much in progress, but it's starting to get pretty exciting um, as we develop new ways of screening these bacteria and finding the new antibiotics. So I hope before the end of my life, I can do something to contribute to managing the organisms that took my mother's life. Thank you for sharing that. Moving now to soil diversity and the 12 soil orders in chapter four, titled Chaos to Order. 
What does the international history of soil classification science have to do with a certain character in your book named Georgiana Scott and her 2018 international soil judging contest participation in a soil pit in Brazil? So for about um, 150 years, uh, scientists have been formally classifying soil. Um, in Russia and in the United States, there um, were both very strong systems developed to develop a taxonomy of soil. And that led to the system we use in the United States and other parts of the world, but not the entire world, that involves the 12 major orders. One of the things that I think is remarkable is that within those orders, there are about 22,000 different <clears throat> soil types. And most people don't realize that there's so much diversity in our soils that, you know, just across one state, you can have a dozen different uh, soil types or, or even more. And so that diversity means one thing that there's a lot more to discover. So in terms of, for example, antibiotic discovery, there's no way that we've discovered antibiotics or looked for antibiotics in all 22,000 um, soil types. Um, but it also means um, that we don't know a lot about the soil. And we think of the soil as, you know, having been studied for a long time. And a lot of general principles are certainly known about soil, but we don't have a comprehensive um, understanding of all the soils in the world. So soil classification over the last about 150 years has become a pretty important part of defining soils and describing soils. And in the last decade, we developed internationally um, a program to have a competition for soil judging. And soil judging is the process of saying the taxonomy of a soil. So going into a, a deep pit in the soil so you can see the profile um, that extends down from the surface and using the information you have in front of you of the texture and the taste and the smell and the colors uh, and the, all of the characteristics of the soil in, and the layers that develop, you can uh, assign a taxonomy to it. And in 2018, Georgiana Scott was the world champion of the soil judging contest in Brazil. And she happens to be a student from the United States, from Clemson University. And so I was quite fascinated by how a student became interested in, uh, in soil judging pretty late in her career. I think she had only studied it for a year or so uh, before she entered the international competition, and she became really adept at it. Most people think it's just hilarious that there is such a thing as soil judging and that there's an international contest for it is even more amusing to them. So I like to tell people this, this really is a serious occupation and a serious competition. So let's move now from the subterranean realm uh, to matters such as erosion, the plow, river dams, and settler colonial agriculture in what is today the United States of America. The role of the Piedmont, um, the geological um, formation that extends to Georgia, which is my home state, and the Aswan Dam in your discussion of erosion were especially illuminating. Can you elaborate on these case studies and how they illuminate your arguments concerning soil erosion? The Piedmont is a particularly cautionary tale because it's not an example of erosion that's happening or will happen. It's an example of erosion that did happen and destroyed agriculture and, and much other uh, vegetation in the Piedmont area of the southeast of the United States. Um, so when the uh, European settlers uh, began to uh, farm that region, which is a fairly hilly, steep region, uh, which makes it more prone to erosion to begin with, the settlers brought in the plow and they began to plow uh, rows for planting seeds. They planted plants that are not particularly nourishing to the soil. They remove a lot from the soil and don't leave much behind. And they um, ended up with eroded soil that was simply washing down the mountains. Before they came, uh, most of that region was forested. 
And so the trees have enormous roots, of course, and deep roots, and they hold the soil in place. And they also nourish the soil because they secrete carbon into, uh, into the soil from their roots. And so that was a very stable process of regenerating the soil and keeping it in place with trees. And when the, when the land on these steep slopes was deforested, that made it vulnerable to erosion. So the combination of removing the trees and then plowing and then planting plants that did not nourish the soil led to the uh, almost total erosion of the soil. And in some areas, complete erosion, there was no soil left to uh, support agriculture. And so the settlers kept moving further west from Virginia all the way to Georgia in search of new soil. And then they kept exhausting the soil because they practiced the same kind of farming all the way. So I think it provides a case study of the past where we don't have to make predictions that it's gonna happen. It really happened. And we don't want to repeat the experience of the Piedmont across the rest of the United States. Uh, Of course, the Midwest and then the far West were uh, settled um, late, much later than, for example, Virginia. And so the erosion process is, is later, uh, presumably we're later in the, or we're earlier in the process in the Midwest because we haven't been farming as, as long, but we're headed in the same direction. So it may take a, a century or two more, but we will run out of soil at this rate, even in the Midwest. The Aswan Dam was one of the most interesting things uh, that I learned about and and talked about in the book. I I find it just an incredible monument to human ingenuity and engineering. It's this enormous dam on the Nile River, which is um, thought to be the largest or longest river in the world. The dam was originally um, created to provide Egypt with uh, the power, electric power that it needed to uh, industrialize. And it was very successful at producing power because the the river, the Nile River is so enormous. It starts in Burundi um, as the White Nile River, and then it goes through Uganda and South Sudan and then Sudan. And then it meets up with the Blue Nile River, uh, which starts in Ethiopia. And the two rivers uh, merge and become the Great Nile River. And that goes through um, Sudan and Egypt, and um, it becomes this just mammoth source of water as as well as nutrients. So a lot of uh, sediment is carried with that river. And in before the dam, when it reached um, the Nile, what's known as the Nile Delta, the river would flood on a roughly annual basis. And uh, most of the silt that was carried by the river would be deposited either on the banks of the Nile in the Delta, or some of it would be deposited at the mouth of the river where it empties into the Mediterranean. And those were very important processes because the sediment that was carried along the whole length of the river and then deposited on the Nile Delta created one of the richest agricultural uh, regions of the world. And it was dependent upon that frequent replenishment with silt. Similarly, the coastline uh, on the Mediterranean where the the Nile empties into the Mediterranean uh, is eroded by the ocean and the deposition of sediment every year, um, something like 124 million tons annually are deposited on that coastline and that replenishes and rebuilds the coastline. So when they built the Aswan Dam, it uh, dammed up the water creating what's known as uh, Lake Nasser, which is this enormous lake that extends um, 100 or 320 uh, kilometers upstream from in Egypt, and then even further, another 160 kilometers into Sudan. It's an enormous lake, and it's that dam, of course, that as the water is released with great force, it generates uh, electric uh, power. 
And so the dam was very successful in doing what it was supposed to do, which was creating power. But 98% of the silt that reaches the dam remains behind the wall of the dam in Lake Nasser and doesn't uh, traverse the dam, doesn't end up in the Nile Delta or on the coastline. And so the result is that the Nile Delta has been starved because it doesn't get this annual delivery of nutrients. And the banks are receding some places 125 meters per year recession. And the same thing on the Mediterranean shoreline, uh, which is also receding because it's being eroded, but isn't being replenished by the delivery of silt. And so the Nile Delta, which is a source of uh, two thirds of Egypt's food production, feeds most of the country, uh, now has to have enormous quantities of phosphorus and nitrogen and silica provided to it from external sources because it's not getting the delivery of silt from the river. So it's, it's another cautionary tale that although we accomplished uh, what we wanted in terms of producing a source of uh, hydroelectric energy by, by building the Aswan Dam, it created another problem, a pretty serious problem of starving the land downstream from the dam uh, of sediment and, and nutrients. So staying with erosion, we will shift now to chapter six, titled Rocky Planet which takes up questions of food security and policy. And you look at Nigeria, Morocco, Bangladesh, and Bhutan, as well as the United States to address these issues. What does the range of your case studies reveal about global food stability and land stewardship? The bottom line is that uh, soil is eroding in just about every country that uh, one looks at. Food security is threatened in many of those countries, in part because of soil erosion, but also in part because uh, populations are, are rising, human populations are increasing, increasing the need for, for food, which is predicted to need to, to nourish 10 billion people by 2050, which is a pretty large increase in food production if we're going to feed that many people. Uh, but the increase in crop productivity is not following suit. And so during what's known as the Green Revolution, decades of breeding crops for high yield using nitrogen fertilizer and other uh, types of nutrients, supplementary nu nutrients to um, increase the crop uh, productivity, we uh, as, as a species, have increased food production incredibly to the point that countries that were never food sufficient before have become completely food sufficient. They, they are independent of external food sources, like India produces all of its, its own food, uh, which it didn't before the Green Revolution. And so that, in many ways, has been very successful. But what people are starting to see when they breed plants today or treat them with, with nitrogen is the yields are not going up in some of those crops in some regions of the world as rapidly as they used to. In fact, many have just plateaued and we can't seem to budge them above the yields that they're at now. And so that does not bode well for the future. And so it raises the question of whether we really will be able to meet the needs in the next 25 to 30 years. Uh, we only have, when you think about it, about 30 cycles of crop growth. Um, if you think of one crop season per year, uh, until that population reaches 10 billion people. And that's not very long to breed plants or develop methods to increase production, especially when we're seeing this kind of leveling off or plateauing of yields in many of the major crops that feed the world. The way in which you portray the relationship between soil fertility, industrial agriculture, fossil fuels, and global warming will stay with me. However, I wondered about the absence of concepts such as the Capitalocene or Plantationocene or more popularly uh, Anthropocene, um, 
but yeah, I'm focused more on capitalist scene and plantation scene, terms popularized by Donna Haraway and Annette Singh, among others. These terms weren't present in your book. How then do you periodize agricultural history of the past few centuries, if not according to these terms? I think it's fine to use those terms. I think they're fascinating, and I think it's great that they were coined. I had trouble with them because they vary across the world. Um, the time frame of when uh, each part of the world was uh, put into agricultural production is different in different places. I mean, just in the United States, the East Coast and the Midwest were settled uh, by European settlers and um, and put into uh, agricultural production more than a century apart. And so when does that period start for each part of the country? And so it's just a choice that I made to analyze it at a, at a local, more local level, um, places that were not plowed uh, before probably wouldn't be in the same agricultural condition as ones that have been plowed for 250 years. And so I just chose not to define the time frame with one of the scenes, so to speak, <laughs> um, but because that period will, will vary across uh, land. But there certainly is a cycle to um, the use of land in agriculture uh, particularly when it's done by European settlers who have methods for agriculture that initially, at least, were very damaging and in some cases still are uh, to the soil. And so you have to take the starting point at a different point um, of when you know the plantation scene started uh, in the East or the Midwest or in India or in Bhutan. Um, but the process is the same where people have begun to plow and destroy the soil. Late in the book, you introduced the idea of soil volatilization and discussed the crucial role of wetlands or peatlands. What is the relationship between wetlands and volatilization, and why is it central to questions of carbon sequestration? Soil volatilization is a, a, a term I use that probably appalls any chemist who hears it because the soil doesn't exactly volatilize. Uh, but some of the compounds and organic materials do volatilize. They become uh, volatile chemicals instead of um, soluble ones or solid ones, uh, stationary ones in, in the soil. And that's the process of either producing carbon dioxide or methane from soil. When soil is managed in a traditional way, most soils do not produce massive amounts of these uh, gases. But when, for example, wetlands and peatlands are disturbed, they uh, are very what we call anaerobic, which is oxygen free. And so soil is um, being turned, the carbon at least in the soil is being turned to methane at very low rates, steady, but low rates. When you disturb it, you introduce oxygen and metabolism by microbes just skyrockets. And then they start producing carbon dioxide, which is a much quicker process. And they start turning uh, very large amounts of carbon in the peatlands uh, or wetlands into carbon dioxide. And that, of course, increases the um, greenhouse gas concentration. On top of it, peatlands, particularly in areas like Indonesia, are starting to be burned. And these peat uh, uh, lands sometimes have uh, 20 or 30 feet of peat uh, on, on the surface of the land but they want to drain the land so that it's not wet and plant trees or plantations in those regions. So many of them will burn the peat. The peat burns wildly and it produces a, a terrible soot, carbon dioxide, smoke, um, and, and is very damaging to the air quality in countries around the area that's being burned. And of course, one of the results is massive release of carbon into the atmosphere. So because soil stores about three times as much carbon 
across the world as is in the carbon in the atmosphere. It's an, a, an incredible sink for carbon. We could be putting more carbon into the soil, but it also is an enormous threat if we burn it or uh, send it off as greenhouse gases or volatilize it, as, as I said, uh, then we're adding to the climate change problem uh, by increasing the, the uh, greenhouse gas concentration, as well as losing precious carbon from the soil. Penultimate question on some sources of inspiration to douse those peatland fires. <laughs> <laughs> Your book categorizes a set of practices as indigenous soil legacies. What do you mean by this category? And what are some key learnings that you want to share from your research into these practices? I think this is the crux of the good news of the book. There are societies across the world, indigenous people who have been farming continuously on the same land for, in some cases, a few thousand years. And so it's clear that agriculture is possible and, and intensive food production is possible without destroying the soil because those societies that practiced with unsustainable methods usually um, declined within 200, 250 years. And these uh, have been going on and even in some cases increasing the depth of the soil, increasing fertility and richness of the soil. Uh, with their agricultural practices. And so the ones that I looked at in, in the book were the Maya of the um, Central America region, uh, the Maori of uh, New Zealand, and, and then the uh, Zuni Indians in the Southwest of the United States. And those are just three examples. There are many others across the world of peoples who settled their land a long, long time ago and have been producing food and doing crop production in, in, in very sustainable ways. The key there is we could learn from those practices. And in fact, we have. We know that sort of the three big practices that need to be adopted are not tilling the land, so the no-till agriculture concept. We know how to do that in um, modern widespread agriculture or industrial agriculture, using cover crops so that between your main crop, when it's not in the ground, the soil is protected and covered uh, by another plant so that it doesn't wash away or blow away during um, the, the off season uh, when, when you're not uh, growing the crop. And then intercropping, which is a very old method used by the Maya and many other people uh, that nourish the soil by introducing multiple plants instead of doing the monocropping that we do so often in modern industrial agriculture. And so the result is that those methods can anchor the soil and, and hold it in place um, and nourish it, increase the carbon uh, content, reduce the need for fertilizers, and protect it from erosion. And those, in addition to managing water flow, which is one of the ways that uh, that soil is eroded is by the rapid movement of water across it, are really the, the crux of these indigenous uh, cultures, uh, agriculture, and why their soil did not erode. These are practices we can easily implement and have been implemented across modern and industrialized agriculture. They just haven't been implemented widely enough. Uh, there's one project in Iowa that I, I deeply admire that is called the STRIPS Project, where they plant, uh, they replace 10% of their corn crop with the indigenous uh, species of, um, of pasture plants, perennial plants that come back every year and have very deep, strong, nourishing root systems and put a lot of carbon into the soil rather than removing carbon from the soil like corn does. And just by taking 10% of the corn and replacing it with these uh, these local and indigenous species, they can reduce the soil erosion 90 to 95%. And so we could turn this problem, you know, in an instant, or at least in one growing season, if, if we had the will to do it. And that's the good news of the soil erosion crisis, is that yes, it's a crisis, and we are going to lose our soil if we keep doing what we're doing. And we won't be able to feed the world's population 
but we know exactly what to do to make that not happen. And there are very few crises in the world of the magnitude of the soil crisis where we know exactly what to do and we could implement it. It just takes the will and in, in the United States, at least a small amount of funding to incentivize farmers to start those practices. Once they've, they've implemented the practices, they will pay for themselves because the reduction in uh, needs for fertilizer and the increases in yield that come with these um, nourishing practices that build the soil uh, will make up for whatever cost there was initially. But we need to help farmers get over that hump of the initial investment. Thanks for that. Final question. What are you working on these days? Uh, I have a couple of soil projects in my lab. One is uh, using a, a model community uh, for soil. So the equivalent of using E. coli or uh, white rats or um, some of the other model systems that have been used to take biology apart and understand its pieces, we've developed a model community that is three organisms from the soil that have very intimate relationships with each other. And because the soil contains many, many thousands of species, it can, it's very hard to, to understand it and isolate the variables that run the soil. And so we've tried we're trying this other approach, which is to develop a model of the soil and understand the processes. And we've found this extremely complex network of chemical signals that the bacteria send to each other and that have effects that we never would have predicted studying each one individually. Uh, and those signals change the behavior of the bacteria, change the way they express genes, change the way their cell surfaces look, change the way they interact with plants. It, it's really it's a remarkable, uh, complex system. And we think that it will tell us a lot about the even more complex network that occurs in actual real soil. Uh, and then I have another small project just starting on soil aggregation. And that really came from working on the book because I realized that aggregating soil is one of the most important things uh, to prevent erosion, that clumps of soil or clods obviously are not going to wash away or blow away at the rate that individual particles would. And so I'm wondering whether we could artificially augment the soil uh, with bacteria or plants of certain types to cause more uh, aggregation. And so I've been uh, working with an engineer on, on that project. Those are two of the big ones I'm working on. Those sound like fascinating projects. I want to thank you, Joe, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed uh, the dialogue and exchange and hearing your insights. Take care. Thanks very much, Yeah, It was great to talk with you.